Good morning, would you pray with me? Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations in all our hearts be acceptable to you, our strength, our song, and our salvation. Amen. I want to continue reading a little further on from where Bruce read for us today from chapter 6, verse 17 through 26. Jesus came down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea, Jerusalem, and the coast of Tyre and Sidon. They'd come to hear him and to be healed of their diseases, and those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. And all in the crowd were trying to touch him, for power came out from him and healed all of them. And then he looked up at his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you will be filled. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and defame you on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for surely your reward is great in heaven, for that is what their ancestors did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you will be hungry. Woe to you who are laughing now, for you will mourn and weep. Woe to you when all speak well of you, for that is what their ancestors did to the false prophets. Hear what the Spirit of God is saying to the church. Thanks be to God. I just want to say a huge thanks to Kim Licavoli and to our readers and to our Sunday School members and to our musicians this morning for the beautiful, beautiful pieces that they've brought to us in worship, for the visual art and the musical art, all of it, amazing. Yeah, just amazing. I hadn't heard any rehearsals. I had only read about this in the bulletin and spoken with Kim about it. So I was intrigued about it theoretically. And in person, what you couldn't see was me back there just with tears streaming down my eyes. How beautiful it was. And how intriguing and compelling to hear those different sounds and rhythms given to Jesus and to the disciples he called to follow him, and how all those sounds together made this new and rich whole. It reminded me a bit of the passage from Corinthians that we read a few weeks ago about the many parts of the body all working together as one. And I love especially that it's the footsteps of Jesus, and you started doing those footsteps too as it went on, the footsteps of Jesus, whose name is Creator Sets Free, 
those footsteps that provide the strong foundation and the steady direction for all the other varied sounds as they entered into the mix and blend together. And it made me think, I wonder what my sound would be, or yours. What would we sound like together? Or is there a sound or rhythm that could represent our church as a whole? And what would that be? And how do we as a body listen for those same firm footsteps of Jesus as the steady beat that grounds us and holds us all together? According to the Gospel of Luke, Jesus' calling of the message bringers to follow him in his ministry happened just before that passage where Jesus gives the blessings and the woes. And even though it happened just before and Jesus called them just again, soon before that pronouncement of the blessings and woes, it's likely that all of those message bringers followed Jesus informally for quite a while before that naming. James and John, for instance, we know were on the shore with Peter when Jesus asked him to go out into the deep waters after an empty night. And others of the 12 might have been among the crowds that saw Jesus heal a man with leprosy, or they could have been listening when Jesus taught in a person's house and a paralyzed man was lowered down through the roof on his pallet and then walked out healed on his own two feet after Jesus' blessing. All those amorphous followers might have been with Jesus plucking heads of grain in a field one Sabbath because they were hungry, or on another Sabbath, they could have been part of the gathering who witnessed Jesus heal a man's hand. And if so, they must also have witnessed the religious leader's anger at Jesus for breaking Sabbath laws, and then seeing Jesus surprising authority in speaking back to them that the law and the Sabbath were meant for life and for good and for healing. All that said, Luke tells us that Jesus had just chosen his 12 disciples from among the throngs on a mountaintop that very morning before he came down the mountain with the crowds still around him and spoke those words that we heard, that I read just a bit ago. And there's three important things to note here about Jesus giving of those Beatitudes. Jesus came down the mountain to do it. Luke says that, and that Jesus stood on a level place to deliver these words to his newly minted disciples. Now, as Sarah said, we might be more accustomed to hearing the Beatitudes at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. That is Matthew's view, version, where Jesus is pictured more like a new Moses, delivering the commandments atop Mount Sinai. In Luke, though, Jesus stands on the same level plane as those hungry, hurting, hopeful crowds around him. You might remember that it's in Luke's gospel where Jesus is born in a borrowed stable and his first witnesses are the shepherds. 
Whereas Matthew, on the other hand, tells of renowned sages from afar, bringing Jesus expensive treasures of gold and frankincense and myrrh. Matthew elevates Jesus. In Luke's telling, though, Jesus is firmly grounded. A second noteworthy point that you might have picked up as you listened to the blessings that I read is they are not the ones that we're used to see hearing. And they're not the ones we see or maybe have stopped seeing in front of us week by week. Again, Matthew has better PR here. And maybe that's because it's easier to take in the sort of grand and non-specific, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, and blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, than it is to stomach, blessed are you who are poor and you who are hungry. In Matthew, Jesus makes majestic blanket statements for all time. In Luke's telling, however, Jesus brings his good news specifically to the places where bad news is the common ground. I suppose we shouldn't be surprised by this, though, since Jesus was bathed in that countercultural message before he even was born. Remember that it's in Luke's gospel where a pregnant Mary sings, God the Mighty One has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty. So it only makes sense that Jesus would follow that heartbeat imprinted in him from the beginning to bring hope to the abandoned, the tear-filled, the ones whose stomachs are growling and whose cupboards are bare. And that gets to the third point about this passage, which is easy to miss. In the midst of a gazillion hurting people reaching out to touch Jesus and to be healed, Luke says Jesus looked up at his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you will be filled. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Blessed are you who are hated and defamed on account of the Son of Man, for surely your reward is great in heaven. Jesus is not saying to everyone, everywhere, for all time, that the poor and the hungry and the grieving and the despised are blessed and therefore should accept their lot, although this passage has often been used that way by people in power to maintain the status quo. Instead, Jesus is speaking directly to his disciples, to the people he has called to his side and who have left their nets and homes and their tax accounting firms to follow him. He's telling the people who have committed themselves to following in his way that he knows it is and will be a lonely and uncertain life lived on the edge. And yet it is a life of blessing because they are carrying the very realm of God into the places that need it most. Their poverty is not a punishment from God, but a point of connection with others who are also waiting for good news. 
They are not going to be standing on a podium throwing paper towels to people who have lost everything. They will be standing among them with their own broken hearts and empty hands, but most of all with the promise that this is not the end. These beatitudes, a colleague wrote, were meant for those of us who are committed to following Jesus. They are meant to get us to pay attention to what we value and to where our sense of happiness and blessing comes from. Jesus speaks these words to his disciples to say, in essence, there is a new rhythm to your life now, a new heartbeat, a new promise of abundance, even in the midst of all your poverty, to center and carry you in all you do and say from here on out. That heartbeat, that rhythm, those footsteps, that promise grounds us still as Jesus' disciples, even today. The Apostle Paul called that subversive promise, that rhythm of new and abundant life, resurrection. In his own unexpected call to be a message bringer, I wonder what his First Nation name and sound would be. Maybe changed by spirit with two lower notes for his former life as a scrupulous keeper of the law, and then a series of rapid, higher sounds to show both his transformational encounter with the risen Christ and the energy he brought in sharing that message everywhere he went. But somehow I believe Paul's rhythm, whatever it would be, would also incorporate his sense of the foundational, essential basis of the church's life and faith. And it's what we heard him arguing for in today's reading. The transformational power of Christ's death and resurrection to change the entire trajectory of our lives and the life of the world. For Paul, one commentator wrote, everything stands or falls on the resurrection. And he named three areas where it makes that difference. First of all, it is an affirmation of the whole life of Jesus. Only in the light of the resurrection does it make sense for followers of Jesus to stand with the poor, the outcasts, and the oppressed. It's the resurrection that invites people to join Christ in providing care and seeking justice for the most vulnerable and to trust that God will bless these efforts even when the results cannot be seen. Second, this commentator continues, Paul's emphasis on the resurrection of the body is an affirmation of human life as part of the created world. That is to say, God values our physical presence, values our bodies, values us as bodies, poor and hungry bodies no less than satisfied and safe ones. And how we use our bodies to care for other aspects of creation is witness to God's intention for the redemption of all creation. And third, Paul argues that Jesus' resurrection is what confirms his promise of forgiveness, 
which is his own door from death to new life. Jesus' resurrection is the evidence that his sacrificial, boundary-crossing life and risky, challenging teachings can be trusted and are every footstep of the way worth following. Belief in the resurrection was Paul's center of gravity, his grounding, and his compass. Not because he could prove it, though he tries awfully hard to do so in his letters, but because he had experienced it. His life was witness that the dead and yet risen Christ had met him and turned his life upside down and then picked him up and started him all over again as a new man on a new path. And as he shared that experience with others, they also had their own life-altering, changed-by-spirit moments, and so themselves became not just messengers, but messages of Christ's resurrection as well, witnessing to the transforming and fleshed, gritty, forgiving power of God to make all things new. If we look back at some of the events and experiences and decisions that have both formed and transformed our life as a congregation over the years, I think we can see that they have been grounded in the power of resurrection. A handful of these experiences come immediately to mind. Opening our building to house the Kalamazoo Drop-In Child Care Center over 30 years ago, when every business model out there looked askance at the idea that free childcare was possible, much less sustainable for the long haul. That's resurrection. What about the way our initial commitment to being a sanctuary church moved from theory to practice as we welcomed Sahida, not just to find refuge in our building for almost three years, but to live in our hearts and to teach us a new way to see the world? Or some of you, I expect, remember this. Walking into this room on a Sunday in June and seeing the entire sanctuary front to back arched over with a glorious rainbow of ribbons. Think of the wordless power of that rainbow to communicate God's message that all bodies are valued and are witness to God's redeeming love. And then there's a recent example of a church building that was dying and then died right next door. But what has miraculously happened in the space where it used to be is light that actually streams through our windows now and a commitment to the children of our community and to their laughter and health and growth The children's nature playscape taking shape next door is a beatitude come to life. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. All of these experiences of joining Christ in caring for the vulnerable and seeking justice for the outcast, of honoring bodies across the spectrum, any spectrum you could name, 
of receiving light through open windows where before there were only walls and darkness. Those are our own resurrection stories. Resurrection isn't about being high and lifted up. It's about staying close to Jesus in the places of hurt, our own hurt, as well as others, and keeping our footsteps, walking in time with his promise of blessing and new life. Yesterday afternoon, my friend Gail Griffin invited me over for tea. Some of you know Gail. She's a retired professor from Kay College. She came to our book club last summer to talk about her autobiographical book, Grief's Country. So I told Gail I wasn't sure I could make it over. It would depend how the sermon writing was going. And Gail texted back almost immediately, here, I'll finish it for you. Remember when Jesus said that thing about whatever you do to the least of these you do to me? He wasn't kidding. <laughs> she was right. When we sign on as Jesus' disciples, we also are named and renamed as message bringers, carriers of blessing into all the places where the least the last and the lost live every day. And the message we bring, the message we are as Christ's body here and now is resurrection. That is the good news that grounds us and gives us wings. May it be so. Amen. <laughs>